In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 Lightspeed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. Might solve a mystery or rewrite history. This is the story we need. It's a right as we kept out of sight for no I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Nackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. And we are back. This is the second part of a two-part edition here on Notably Disney, centered on the most emotional music from Walt Disney World. Matt Parrish from Wedway Radio and the 3028 Podcast is here once again as we talk all about a number of categories that evoke specific emotions. Let's, uh, let's shift over to another actually a counterpoint emotion to energizing. So another category is calming. So something that is tranquil mm-hmm. or relaxing. And uh, my pick is actually situated in the same space that I talked about. So I talk about Tomorrowland itself as an entity being extremely energizing. But the place where I feel most calm and most at ease, most relaxed in Walt Disney World is the cue music in Space Mountain. <laughs> okay, it finally happened. We selected the same thing. Oh, I'm giving you a virtual <laughs> high five now. Let's let's just Up do top. it back and forth. <laughs> Absolutely. You, so. That's excellent. I mean, isn't that so strange, the way that you're going on this fast-moving attraction, and yet when you walk into the queue, it's like, it's, it's, uh, it's majestic. It is. And the, it feels extremely serene, and um, the star tunnel music is just absolutely breathtaking. Like, this is a piece of music where if you need to go to bed and you just put on the four-hour loop of it on YouTube, that will do wonders. <laughs> it doesn't even make sense, like, why this is there. The, the trumpet work... Um, you know, you hear that brass as you, you know, go down and then you ascend back up into the mountain. Uh, you see the other thing, you know, I mentioned serenity. It's serene because they show you, or at least they used to, the constellations um, or not constellations, but the the uh, the nebulas and things as you walk through. And you're thinking, wow, this is this great big world I'm going to experience. Um, but it doesn't seem scary. No, not at all. And because of the use of the brass and the way that it is, it's that the tone is relatively, I'd say, stable, even though you have those moments of those crescendos. But I, I feel like it is extremely ethereal, which makes sense given the notion of it being Space Mountain and set uh, in other galaxies. But it it's this almost cyclical piece of music that never really goes anywhere and it reinforces that notion of wanting to just fall asleep or just feeling extremely relaxed and and ready to go on a very energizing attraction and at the time if you think of it being you know disney's most thrilling attraction um at that at that theme park um you might you know children or families might feel a little more comfortable before they get on it so is it actually pragmatic in that way as well like i don't know it doesn't ever feel scary you know we we've we've gone 
at least at this point, we've gone far away from the, you know, the eerie nature of Hollywood Tower Hotel where you know you're walking into something scary here. It doesn't feel like that. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. There's it's it's always interesting when there are attractions like that. That's a very good comparison where there are these paradoxes of sorts in terms of the vibe when you first enter versus what the attraction itself actually represents. Great point. Yeah. And this is one uh, one of those rare ones. You know, you don't find that everywhere. Totally, totally. So how about you? Oh, well, I was going to say, how about you? We, we both agree. <laughs> I, we agree. This I, is so <laughs> it's the most calm. It's it must be the right answer then. I, I guess so. I, I really can't think of any other attractions that are that prominent in my mind that that really evoke calmness. So good. Awesome. Well, that makes it easy. So how about you take it over? So the next category is most joyful. So the notion of joy, bringing delight and elation, what comes to mind to you when when I say joyful at Walt Disney World? Yeah, this one's super easy for me. Um, It's actually an attraction song that was a constant at Epcot for a number of years. Then it went away for just a few years, and then it came back with its beloved character. And this is One Little Spark, written by the Sherman Brothers, of course. And I've picked a couple of Sherman Brothers songs here because they're just so iconic. Uh, in terms of Disney history, I find w- joyful, you know, the, a song like that to be joyful because it feels, again, like, you know, Main Street. It's optimistic. It's uh, positive, And it makes you think about the future in a different way. And, and that's kind of what that attraction was doing. It was asking you to look at things um, differently and to sort of go with your ideas and let them be a construct for you or innovative for you. And so that's what One Little Spark is uh, is all about. And I find it joyful. It's To me, it's one of the most joyful songs in, in any Disney park. That's such a great pick. And, and part of it, too, I think that joy really emerges from the fact that it's a bouncy tune. It's, hum- it's one that you can hum to. It just has a a fun beat to it and i think that's a trademark quality really of any sherman brothers song whether it's as joyful as one little spark or even something like great big beautiful tomorrow which is maybe not as bouncy but still very bright and optimistic yeah and they're generally simple melodies written on piano not too complex but complex enough that when you mix the lyrics and the music there's a harmony there um, and then it transcends the attraction. I mean, that's something that you think about and it, you know, it allows you to think about the world in a different way. Those guys were geniuses. <laughs> I mean, and one of them still is alive, but, uh, just in the way that they understood motivations, they understood Walt Disney's motivations. They understood, you know, a theme park guest motivation in an era when there was only one theme park on earth. Yeah. And, and that genius also really carries over to their use the use of language and lyrics and the the construction of wordplay like i feel like through so many sherman brothers songs i've learned the definitions of different words right (laughs) that's so true that's so true and there's that interesting part there um that speaks to what you're saying in saving mr banks that they sort of snuck in the movie and i think it was even on the movie trailer uh when they're writing supercalifragilistic and she's saying, uh, and uh, uh, what's her name? Not, I always want to call her J.K. Rowling, but it's it's P.L. Travers. Yeah. P.L. Travers, but P.L. Travers is like, I don't want any, you know, mumbo jumbo in there. And they're like, oops, you know, and they like tuck that, you know, that, those lyrics away so she can't see them. Uh, but they did so many great things. I mean, they begin with Sword in the Stone, and you see the word play, and then you know it it just you know extends into basically everything they wrote for the Disney Company, whether it's Winnie the Pooh. Or, you know, any number of films or attractions that they wrote for all, um, you know, very insightful in terms of the way people think and the way that we speak and, you know, what makes us tick. And then also just, hey, this is a relaxy, nice tune. It doesn't there's nothing jarring about it. Yeah. It, and, and that's where I think another really signature element of their music is that it's it almost seems like that it was produced like an effortlessness quality to both the both the construction of of the sound but also in how it comes across to us as the listener right which is not the way that music is all the time you know what i mean sometimes it's 
I don't know. There's not a, it's not an awkwardness, but there's a negotiation that happens between you and the music. I find this a lot. My wife is always like, Oh, you never listen to anything new. Like, because I have to negotiate it too much. It doesn't feel familiar to me. That's, that's a really interesting point. Yeah. I, I tend to gravitate toward music from the past as well. I know uh, it's, it just feels more simple or easier. Like you said, effortless. Yeah. Yeah. I think for that reason alone, I feel like I should be stuck in the eighties cause it's eighties music that I listen to more than music from you know the the charts right now so right right yes i totally agree well so goes but so i also went with the sherman brothers for joyful and and my pick was because i did not put it earlier there's a great big beautiful tomorrow and i i just i adore that song so much i feel like it's the encapsulation of walt disney of any disney theme park of the Disney company that is so much focused on what, how can things be better and how can we best live our lives and as it's sung I think to myself wow there's what things that always seem decent or good today may not have been in the past there's always going to be a better tomorrow with ingenuity with hopefulness I think the Carousel Progress is the epitome of uh, a joyful attraction. Mind you, it, it certainly only depicts one uh, type of American household or society. Uh, it's not necessarily representative of uh, all identities or experiences, but what it represents is that through technology, through embracing family, we can live a really good life. And the the lyrics carry that and i think it's just an absolutely joyful song it's fantastic the whole attraction is i think it's smart that you pointed out that it's not representative of everyone but in the in the other you know on the other hand it can be because anyone can have their lives made better through these conveniences and so that's why the attraction was designed it was designed for you know to look at you know how appliances would make your life better and then now it's something a little bit bigger than that and the song sort of carries it forward and um i, I yeah those all all great points there i find it very joyful as well it kind of has that sweet caroline quality to it where anybody can sort of pick up and sing to it and it's okay well i just want to see you know i want to go to a bar and there to be karaoke night and then great big beautiful tomorrow come on and everybody's singing but Maybe that would just be on Disney Cruise Line or something. <laughs> so shifting over to a different emotion, really the contrast of joy and that sadness. And we're not talking about the blue character from Inside Out, but we are talking about things that are upsetting and causing sorrow. And for me, one one song that I really feel like represents sadness is a song about death and separation and that being two brothers from the american adventure uh, this is by irving gordon and it focuses on those those two brothers you have the confederate and union soldiers in the civil war it's about a minute and a half long it's extremely melan uh, it evokes melancholy it's um, a fairly simple melody with um, not a lot in the way of lyrics or wordplay, but because of the somber tone of both the atmosphere and what is represented in the lyrics, it's it's one that I think would make a lot of people cry and think about people they've lost over time, whether um, lost in terms of being separated from them or not, no longer being communication or or lost from um, no longer still living. This is an excellent choice. It's the reason why I also chose it. <laughs> Once again, we have a, a crossover here. Um, but, you know, this is, it's in the way that, and uh, unfortunately, we, we see some of this today. And fortunately, not through the lens of war, but just through the lens of culture, we see the separation sometimes, or people trying to separate people um, in our in our great country here in the United States, and that's what you find in this song is that values and ideas and sometimes convictions and passions, although those are positive things in some aspects, are you know or can be considered negative things in others when it uh, when it you know serves as a divide 
between us and we lose our unity. And that's so this song is much more than to me than about the Civil War. It's, you know, it speaks to humanity and there are things that sort of pull us apart. I'm also a brother. Um, and, you know, sometimes brothers are pulled apart by different things. And so, you know, we you know, that happens. Uh, also, and so there's a lot of you know you can take it literally, you can take it figuratively, but you look at that song, and I'm not sure who the female performer is um, who who performed that song, but we went going back to like Vera Lynn and the sort of haunting voice, you know, you get that through her interpretation of the song, which is fantastic, um, and I you know to carry it forward even that attraction is very reflective, and 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 we look at history and we say well you know there's these great moments in american history but there's also these other moments that we don't tend to you know we tend to gloss over uh we saw as we talk about our own history and we see that with frederick Douglass, we see it with chief joseph and we see it with a number of different people um and so this song is a is an important lesson for us to look at you know what happens even to a family in america when ideas and convictions divide us well, that was extremely well said. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think a song like this has such contemporary relevance, whether we want to look at things politically or ideologically, any of those uh, different qualities that tends to divide uh, individuals, groups of people, communities, families. Uh, so I think this song actually could not be more relevant, even though it is from decades ago. And I never would have thought about it like that as a, as a younger person, even maybe 15 years ago, I didn't see it in that way. And, um, today when I hear it, when I see it performed on stage and you see the pictures of the young men sort of separate, uh, after you see the family kind of talk at each other, not to each other, but at each other, you know, we're going to ruin Ma's birthday. Uh, and that's what happened. A lot of ruined birthdays. And, uh, unfortunately we live in an era now where sometimes we do have ruined Christmases and ruined birthdays because some of those same convictions come out. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, it, you know, in this case, uh, if we're talking about politics, it'd be like one more red and one more blue. <laughs> <laughs> it, it would. And unfortunately, what's sad about that, and I think it, you know, speaks to the song, too, is that most of us don't just wear red or blue. But yet these powerful ideas tend to separate us sometimes or we we allow them to. Um, and so, you know, in a country where we have a marketplace of ideas, sometimes those forces um you know, oppose each other. And so, yeah, you can get a lot out of this song and, um, it, you know, you get feels when you hear it, but at the same time, there's this cultural or political relevance. And then it's kind of sad too, because I think if we all looked at each other and we all met each other on the street and we weren't on social media, we would find that we don't, you know, we're not that different from each other. Yes, absolutely. So the takeaway from this round is that, you know, if you want to if you want to feel sadness and cry, go to The American Adventure. And if you want to feel optimistic, listen to a Sherman Brothers song. Right. <laughs> they should have put a Sherman Brothers song in The American Adventure. No, I think it's important that The American Adventure isn't rose-colored glasses. I think it's important to see the flaws of your of your society. But that doesn't mean you have to be defined by them, right? And so that's where the, that's where the ending comes in. And that's why we have, you know, um, the song at the end that's much different than Two Brothers. Yep, that's your that's your triumphant song. You have Golden Dream. Yes. So thank you. All about contrasts, right? There's whether it's differences between the queue and the main attraction, or in this case, a, a an American advent, the American adventure from sadness to triumph. Yes. Very good. <laughs> so now we're gonna shift over to our last two categories, and the first one is very reflective from the standpoint it's our most missed piece of music so this is something that is extinct that, that is no longer in walt disney world uh, so when we think of some, missing something we feel loss we feel absence something isn't whole so i'm wondering matt what did you identify for this i could have picked about 50 different songs uh for this whether you know it could be Veggie, veggie, fruit, fruit. It could be hooray for Hollywood. There's a number of songs that sort of defined my trips through the years from a, a place of, uh, you know, nostalgia. I think the song that I most, I don't know, any number of the Horizon songs would have worked too. But it, the song that I most identified with as a as a young person that I miss the most today, which I wish they could find a way to 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 find a place for, is Tomorrow's Child. 
and that was the Spaceship Earth song uh, prior to the Jeremy Irons version. And although I like the Jeremy Irons version of the attraction better, I really have always missed the song Tomorrow's Child. And I just think it's a it's a cool way of looking at the future. It kind of reminds me of the PBS shows I watched as a kid, Breeding Rainbow and Nova. And I always think about, you know, Tomorrow's Child is, is this, you know, infant that's going to see the world differently than I see it and see the future differently than I see it. And it always seemed very optimistic to me. And I think we keep going back to that. But I think what this music does is it sort of lifts us. And uh, that's what great music can do. Oh, yeah, that's a that's a great choice and really a, a time capsule of Epcot in the 80s and early 90s, too. It's funny, uh, we had Lentesta on the podcast earlier, and he said one piece of music that he uh, that really got stuck in his head a lot was Tomorrow's Child, um, because he listened to it constantly when he was uh, working on a, a major uh, research endeavor. So, <laughs> exactly. Maybe it's a maybe it's a thing for longtime Disney uh, podcasters, stalwarts uh, in the in this world to have an affinity for Tomorrow's Child. I don't know. Well, I th- yeah, you know what? Maybe just dedicate a whole episode of a show to the the music of Spaceship Earth over time. So <laughs> it's so good. It really, it's just amazing. I could have picked it for any number of these categories. Well, I, I think that's a, a great choice, and it is very reminiscent of of the past. And I actually stuck with the theme of Bruce Broughton, who is responsible for the current iteration of the Spaceship Earth score. But it is an attraction that is no longer at Epcot. It's a favorite of mine that I was so disappointed to see go. And that is Ellen's Energy Adventure. And uh, we talk about music that is so exhilarating and pompous and very, and you know, you made references to it earlier and feeling like it could be like Spielbergian. Like it just yes. uh, evokes that vibe. But why I loved it so much is for all that and more, but because. It was. It had such a massive range. It could be extremely triumphant. It could also be very um, atmospheric. So, for instance, um, in the part of the attraction where you would be loading, and it would have a portion of the score, but in a very wistful um, tone to it, that was almost like a, a variation of the main theme. I, I absolutely loved it. it uh, it's an ent- the entire score is brilliant absolutely brilliant and then you have the four and a half five minute uh segment of sorts that has been featured on a number of walt disney world soundtracks over the years and it's just absolutely bright and you just feel so much emotion because of the full orchestra being used and because of broughton's brilliance in composing scores i could not agree more i just there's so much there's so much to say about a song like this and an attraction that lasts 35 minutes or whatever it did. Uh, you know, you need something to sort of carry it through. And this did it, you know, this segued a lot of the moments in that attraction where you move from room to room or onto ride vehicle and off ride vehicle. Um, and then you had, you know, what does the attraction do? It looks for, you know, resources for the future and how regular folks can learn about, you know, what makes the world turn and how can they use that to their own advantage? How can we as a society do that? And the song somehow, you know, pulls us through that, too. And you're right. It has these different moments, these sort of softer moments and then these sort of big orchestral moments. And, um, you know, it's it's this is one of those that there are a number of songs that you might go to Walt Disney World and sort of miss. Uh, this would never have been one of them. I think it will go down as one of the greatest theme park scores or sort of orchestral uh, compositions that have ever been in any attraction. And I'm actually, I I appreciate the fact that when they went back to the drawing board for Universe of Energy, they went away from the sort of new age, new wave music um, that, you know, was found in Epcot at the time and went with something a little more contemporary. And it, it seemed to really last uh, and, te- you know, stand the test of time as that, you know, attraction moved on for about 20 years under the Ellen's refurb. So I love it. Such a great choice. So good. I could have, again, I could have put it in any one of these categories of things that I love triumphant. Uh, and uh, it, there's so many good ones. 
Well, and I, and I think you made a really good point there in terms of it being fitting for so many of the different emotions that we've talked about this evening, because that's what re- great pieces of music represent. They they evoke so many different feelings, um, no matter time, no matter the space. And I think that also translates to Broughton being a really underrated and valuable composer and someone who's been integral to the Disney theme parks and Disney films over the past three decades. And he probably won't get the full credit that he deserves in the same way that maybe the Sherman brothers do, but you're absolutely right. I mean, he's, he's helped to define, certainly helped to define uh, the most recent uh, versions of Epcot that a lot of us experienced in the last 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. And then even going back to the wonders of life days and he was responsible for the making of me film, which is an attraction that I don't think could necessarily, uh, work today under how Disney operates, but it's a, a very clever and uh, smart film too. I totally agree. Yeah. He's, um, he's been really instrumental in uh, a number of our experiences and really our memories um, that we attached and, you know, uh, to those pavilions and those attractions. Great choice. Excellent. Uh, very good choice for that. And I loved how you said that the term instrumental without there being a the dumb bum. <laughs> <laughs> I always do that. We, <laughs> we, uh, we, we did a, a show about 101 Dalmatians and I kept saying, I kept referring to something like a spot on, that's a spot on something. And I, and finally Kevin had to point out that I had said spot on about 15 times when we were talking about the movie with the dogs, with the spots. Huh. I guess I'm uh, not clever enough to know when I'm making a pun. No, no kidding. That's, that's hilarious. Well, we have, we have one last category here, and that is most awe-inspiring. So maybe there are some parallels here to triumphant, but the definition of awe is experiencing overwhelming feelings of reverence and admiration. It's something that we maybe don't experience all that often, but when it does happen, it is monumental. And for me, it's a select of yours from earlier and it is the score for so soren over california or and i kind of put that as an asterisk because again uh <laughs> it's no longer here but it recently returned to disneyland for a bit it and did. and more importantly there are elements of that score uh in the newer composition of it for soren around the world so it kind of manifests in a unique way but i would say um, if you want to consider it a tie, but basically Soren in general, that the music for that film uh, produces awe because of the sights, because of the uh, notable elements of, of what you're seeing on screen and what you're hearing and it just being totally overwhelming and, and hard to describe as, as, as you would maybe have if you visited a national park or one of the uh, magnificent wonders around the world. That's such a great point. I was on the Chicago architecture tour um, a week ago today, and my mind was blown. I wouldn't have it was hard for me to describe what it was like to see all that brilliance, you know, uh, standing 50 to 110 stories tall. And all I could really do is sort of break it down into pieces. And so that's kind of what we do when we you know, we write Soarin' Over the World, we or Soarin' Over California, is we break it down into pieces. Oh, I love this part with this smell and this scene, but, like, if you look at the, you know, it, the joy of it and the and the awe of it uh, as a collective, it's, it's impossible to describe, and the music makes it that much harder. By the way, you just went back-to-back Bruce Broughton. Hey, you know, and I love the alliteration <laughs> of that, too. So <laughs> that's just brilliant, Matt. Thank you. You're welcome. Nice job. Uh, uh, I couldn't couldn't agree more with you, with your choice. That's, I mean, obviously, I even picked it before. Yeah. Well, you know what? And again, speaks to the the power of Soren. And if there was an awe inspiring uh, piece of cue mu- music or or part of a cue video, certainly Patrick Warburton fits that bill because he just <laughs> evokes awe with how he can say some of those lines with such dignity and uh, nonchalance. He's brilliant, too. I mean, all the years on Seinfeld, he was just awesome. And there is a juxtaposition between Patrick Warburton and maybe the majesty of of uh, of Soren. I don't know, but it's uh, it's 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 excellent. I have one, too. You're not going to be able to deny my choice. OK, uh, well, go for it. 
Are you ready for this? Because this is a great way to sort of send off our list here uh, with the most awe-inspiring. And I think anyone could agree because it's a number of songs and uh, arranged by someone we've already mentioned, Buddy Baker. But the score from Impressions de France, I don't know that you'll find a better score even though it's not necessarily original to the attraction, but the way that it's arranged is, and it's just, it takes you through all the emotions, and it takes you through all of France, and it's just this combination of, of excellence and, um, and awe, as you mentioned in the category. It's, it's everything. Well, and the, the screen alone for the film is awe-inspiring because it's not circle vision, but it sure surrounds you quite a bit. Right, right, and that, and that was kind of a... You know, they were dealing with the technology of the time and it's, you know, I guess it speaks to the to the um, to the remarkable nature of that film that they're, you know, totally transforming the France pavilion. And yet they're going to keep Impression State France because people love it so much. I mean, that film is going to be 40 years old. That's that's amazing. Well, and it's it's one of those classic Epcot attractions. And thank goodness that even with the influx of characters and the redevelopment of the park in many ways, that that will be preserved. And I think it's the 1.0. If you if you ask me, I would say it's the 1.0 of soaring over California or soaring over the world. I mean, that's really what it is. I mean, you just subtract the smellitzer, and I know we don't get the smells in there, even though you can kind of smell the the patisserie as you're in there. But you get a combination of sights and sounds and moments and crescendo and these sort of low points that move to high points and all of this evocative music and it it all sort of comes together and then at the end in the same way that you you know your finale of soaring over california soaring over the world is to find yourself back in a disney property with fireworks that's what impressions day france does it takes you through again you get a snapshot a little clip of each of those areas you've been through and the music hits these points and you just you get all of the feeling at the end of that show it's so good i i appreciate the comparisons to soren as well because you're right i could imagine like a, a grandparent taking a grandchild to Epcot and saying, in my day, well, we, we didn't have flying hang gliders. We had to go to Impressions de France. <laughs> right. <laughs> and the middle road would be the 360 uh, film, which is kind of both. Uh, but, you know, even though it dates back prior to Impressions de France, but kind of brings you uh, to a different point in uh, the cinematic universe in experiencing film. Um, it's a little less traditional than what Impressions de France does, but I, I just, I love the way that you could see, um, you know, the history and the contemporary in France. And then those songs, oh my gosh, they're so good. I can't pronounce the, the, um, the conductors who, and that's just my Midwestern ignorance here and not being French, uh, or German. And, but there's, they're all of them combined are fantastic. Oh, absolutely. I, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think Claire de Lune by Debussy is one of the pieces that is somehow embedded in that in that film. All right. Well, Matt, that I think has been a fantastic list. We had some similar choices. We covered all four theme parks in Walt Disney World, and uh, often a number of composers and songwriters entered the mix, too. I, I often ran out of adjectives, I have to tell you, <laughs> because the, mu- the music is very hard to describe. Um, you know, I wish I was a sort of uh, classically trained musician who could describe a lot of what I'm feeling. But that I think that's the beauty of a lot of this music. And as you mentioned, we go all around the theme parks and there's a you know, there's beauty to be found in all of these lands throughout all these different attractions. I think that's what keeps us coming back to Disney. A lot of it, just the music and the feelings that we feel when we're there and when we get to experience that. I, we, I try to just like you, I try to replicate that at home in the car with the kids and put the music on. But it's never as potent as when you're walking around those theme parks. Absolutely. That that's very true, and I, I ran out ad- adjectives myself. So you're not the only one. I, okay. I found myself saying the same words, but that's quite all right. We we're very enthusiastic about the music, and we want to use the right exact words. So as we wrap up this episode of Notably Disney, like with every episode, we conclude with some Disney-related questions that I ask all of my guests. So it is time for a segment called "Ask Them My Questions and Get Some Answers." <laughs> Okay. Do your do your Tim Russert Chuck Todd here. I, I'm I'm ready. All right. 
right? So this includes three standard music-related questions, two standard book-related questions, and one random Disney question. So this is all opinion-based. There are no wrong answers. Matt, are you ready? I'm ready. All right. First one, we're going to think about nostalgia with the first one. So what Disney soundtrack did you listen to most while growing up? Well, I mean, to, to be real with you, I mean, there was a there's an era of Disneyland records that I grew up with, which is a compilation. Those are compilation albums. Most of the songs were from f- Disney films from the 40s and 50s, um, some of them Disney shorts. And so those are the ones I really probably grew up with and listened to the most. But as a younger, you know, elementary school kid when I was about 10 or 11, Probably that Beauty and the Beast soundtrack is the one that I heard the most having two sisters. So I know all of those songs inside and out. It's a a tale as old as time. Most people, I would imagine, consider that a classic as well. It's awesome. awesome. Fantastic. What Disney song most recently got stuck in your head? Wow. That's a great uh, question. A lot of the Toy Story songs get stuck in my head. Um Strange Things uh, is one that almost always gets stuck in my head. Randy Newman, we mentioned that earlier on the show. Uh, The song that gets stuck in my head that I like the most but have a hard time admitting I like the most is the song from Tangled. It's the love theme. And I think that song, just like the the sort of wanting song in Moana that she sings, uh, both of those songs are ones that get stuck in my head a lot. I love them. And that that's having a two-year-old and a seven-year-old. So we hear those songs a lot, and, and I really, really like them. Yeah, I, I see the light as well, and it's pointing me toward our next question, which <laughs> is— you. Yeah, you're, well, you're welcome. Thank you. I, I'm glad you actually appreciate the, 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 the puns and all that jazz. But um, what Disney film— Matt, do you feel has the most underrated music? Ooh. Underrated music in a Disney film. Man, that is tough. That's a tough question. Um, Wow. I don't think the Jungle Book music is underrated. I think it's very good. But I don't think people think of the Jungle Book when they think back and they think about the catalog of Disney films because there's no princesses. Sometimes it's a a rough story. You've got lots of villainy. Um, I think those songs are the most underrated. They weren't at the time. Phil Harris, um, you know, he was fantastic in that show. And um, who was the uh, who was the jazz artist? I keep wanting to say oh. Louis Louis Armstrong, but that is not correct. Different Louis. You're close. Louis Prima. Louis Prima, so good. And they went to Vegas and recorded that music with him. And I, I don't know. I think that the music from that film, def- I mean, I know Mary Poppins gets all the credit, but I just think it was so great. Um, Bare Necessities, not written by the Sherman Brothers, but kept in the film. And then all the Sherman Brothers songs and then Louis Prima's performances with Phil Harris. Awesome. Great pick. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I quite like uh, Trust in Me. I think that's a, a really uh, hypnotic song of sorts. It, as, so. it was, as it was designed to be. Yes, exactly, right? So let's slither our way to the two book-related questions. So because we cover books on this podcast as well. So Matt, what is the most recent Disney book or Disney-related book that you've read? The most recent, uh, the most recent book that I read is Don Hahn's Yesterday's Tomorrow. It's a larger print book. Um, it's it's almost the size of that Imagineering book that came out about ten or twelve years ago, which is excellent, by the way. Shows a lot of concept art and stuff. But Yesterday's Tomorrow by Don Hahn is the one that I read most recently. A lot of times I skim books because I'm doing research or whatever, so I don't have a chance to sit down and read the full, you know, cover to cover. Uh, but that one I did read cover to cover, and it's awesome. It's a great way of looking at Disney in the mid-century um, and how they incorporated, you know, I- ideas of the atomic, the kinetic stuff we talked about on this podcast. Um, it's it's really, really great. And Don Hahn is just a fantastic person and then just a great mind uh, for Disney um, through the last, you know, 
30 or 40 years. Oh, yeah, totally agree. And if listeners want to check back to episode nine of Notably Disney, we had Courtney and Emily from the Book of the Mouse Club podcast, and we talked about uh, this wonderful Don Hahn book yesterday's tomorrow so full discussion of that amazing book as um, matt you definitely agree um so check out episode nine of notably disney so great tie-in <laughs> yes uh, it's always good when you can promote a back show <laughs> yes i know right i feel like wow we actually have a catalog so now our uh, second book related question is matt if you could write a disney book on any topic what would it be about wow <laughs> It's so tough. There's so many great ones already. Um, it, there's so many great ones. I think, you know, the the book Disney War covers Disney in the 80s. But I think a lot more could be written about that transition between Ron Miller, Card Walker into Frank Wells, Michael Eisner, Jeffrey Katzenberg. I think there's a lot of information there. And all of those guys, aside from Frank Wells, are alive. Um, you know, in the second regime, Card Walker, of course, and Ron Miller are deceased. But you could get a lot of info. If you could sit Jeffrey Katzenberg down for an hour and ask him every question that you could possibly ask him about, you know, being being Michael Eisner's right hand man and hearing about, you know, the way that Eisner went about his his work. I think that would be fascinating. I don't know that we've ever received that as a as Disney fans. Yeah, it's it's fascinating you touched on that because I I think in a past episode of the podcast um, we had on uh, Chris Lucas who wrote a book full of um, different Disney lists uh, called Top Disney and we're talking a little bit about that era and with Ron Miller's recent passing and how you know a lot has been overlooked about his contributions to the company and then with Eisner and and uh, Frank Wells coming in and how that really changed the landscape of disney so that would be an amazing book yeah i mean we can see how history unfolded i mean that's a great part about hindsight we could see the you know the um the the push for live action and the way that the disney company you know moved its products on vhs and how it sort of stirred nostalgia for the brand and how they you know played that out in the theaters and then recreated the magic with the disney renaissance films under the watchful eye of Jeffrey Katzenberg. And I just think that there's a lot there. Obviously we couldn't get in touch with, with Frank Wells to learn more about what was happening in the front office, but it's always the front office stuff that fascinates me the most. The same thing is true for me with baseball. I love baseball, but what I really love about baseball is the business of baseball. And I love thinking about, you know, what scouts do and how they transmit their information to the general managers and then how that uh, makes its way of, forming lineups and teams and this kind of thing. I think I like the structure of, you know, what the Disney was, company was doing and where they were investing. Some of the things they did worked really well and some of them didn't work. And it'd be interesting to see, you know, what their motivation was for each of the things that they did. Yeah. Ditto. Ditto. I, I, I want, it, it would be so great if Eisner participated in more interviews these days about reflecting back on that era. So, this leads us to our last question, and this is a random question, so um, always always change it up for each episode, depending on the guest. And for you, Matt, the question is, what Walt Disney World attraction do you feel most deserves a major refurbishment? <laughs> what Walt Disney World attraction needs a refurbishment? Is that the question? Yes, indeed. Wow. Um... Ooh, that's tough. I I think it's easily an attraction in Tomorrowland. Um, and, you know, I grew up with Mission to Mars and then Alien Encounter, the extraterrestrial that became Stitch's adventure or something, whatever it became. Um, I didn't experience it that much. That area of Tomorrowland, I mean, that's where you, uh, for a lot of us, first experience the world of tomorrow and whether that's the buck rogers version of it or it's the tomorrowland in motion version of it uh there's nothing that sort of ties that land together anymore uh the tta used to do that tomorrowland transit authority before it became the wedway people mover uh but it no longer does that and so is there something that can sort of connect the themes of of tomorrowland i don't know if it's possible today unfortunately with with buzz and you know, Monsters, Inc., you know, a lot of those ideas are disconnected and it's like an extension of Fantasyland. 
but I wouldn't mind something futuristic, optimistic, atomic uh, that serves the sort of ideas of the past in a modern way, finding its way into that you know theater space there. I think that would be amazing. I, I just don't know what they would do, but that's the area that needs the most improvement. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, I, I, I certainly want to see a revitalization of Tomorrowland and one that isn't too dependent on characters or brands, but rather the symbolism of the themes that the land really represented upon its opening back at Disneyland in 55 and then Disney World in 71. So, yeah, great choice. I, I wouldn't even care if it was a one man's dream Walt Disney Presents style look, a Don Hans Yesterday's Tomorrow walkthrough exhibit. That would be an improvement to me. Uh, no kidding. That, you know what I mean? In that area. Um, and I think Disney does a great job of celebrating itself when it wants to. And sometimes they do a very poor job of implementing IP ideas. Sometimes they do a great job. So it's a, it's really a crapshoot. I don't know what they would do. I don't think they know what they want to do with that area. Well, we shall see with the 50th anniversary of Walt Disney World. There's there, There'll be some changes. So on that note, thinking of the future, and definitely if listeners have not checked out your podcast, both Wedway Radio and uh, 3028, they definitely should. How, how can listeners get in touch with you, Matt, as well as check out your podcasts? Yeah, that's a great question. So you can find our podcast, uh, Wedway Radio, which I started with my brother in 2008, 2009, and have been doing annually, not always weekly, but annually, uh, and now weekly again on iTunes. You can find that on iTunes. There are 10 seasons worth of shows to go back and dive into. Most of them are evergreen, uh, meaning that we didn't do a bunch of news shows and uh, and call them shows. We tried to dive into specific Disney history topics or cultural moments that Disney was involved in. So you can check those out. I'm not going to promise that all of them are amazing <laughs> because in 10 years of shows, you know, you get some, you get some filler shows in there. And I think some of them are you know, some that I would hang my hat on and some that I wouldn't, but I do invite you to, to check those out. Um, and then on the 3028, spell out 30, and the uh, number 20, and then spell out eight, which is the hardest part podcast in the world to find. Also on iTunes, Kevin Quigley, who's an, uh, an author in Massachusetts, also a Disney fan. He and I do Disney history and Disney listery, and Disney listery is just our lists that we do on the show. Um, it's just a way that we can do Disney quickly. Um, it has a number of, um, you know, historical contexts when we talk about stuff. Most recently, we did a show on Roasty Toasties, the little characters that you find in the popcorn machines um, throughout Disneyland that are specific to each land that not a lot of people dive into, not a lot of info on that kind of stuff. So we did a show on that. It's a list show, but it's a list show as to where you can find all of those Roasty Toasties in Disneyland. So that's kind of the way that we do listry. It's not just lists. It's There's history attached as well. And then we do a number of history shows too. So that's what I do. I don't have any books. Um, you know, the podcasts are what I do, where I focus most of my time. I would love it if you would, uh, if you, would you know, check those out. Again, there's a ton of shows. I wish I could just like speak to one or two that we've done that, that are the best. But we've done lots of series, a Haunted Mansion series, a Snow White series. We've done lots of those too. And um, it's a lot of fun. I mean, we try to just infuse as much fun as we can into the podcast. Um, it's not always academic. Sometimes it's it's a it's you know if you had a pie chart, sometimes it would be seventy percent fun and thirty percent academic, and then vice versa. Well, and there's always fun facts embedded in each episode, especially with all those unique topics. When you talk about the popcorn uh, personalities, I think right. you know recently uh, Duke Kaboom from uh, Toy Story Four. Uh, became one I, I think I saw out at uh, California Adventure, if I'm not mistaken. Um, or so it's just it's uh, it's amazing this the bevy of characters. <laughs> that is correct. Yeah, that is the only living character uh, that's a roasty toasty now at California Adventure. So that was a that was a thing that uh, an executive producer friend of mine at Imagineering did. Uh, Jeffrey Shaver Moskowitz, who's been in charge of lots of different projects in the for the Disney company. That was one of his big pushes. We need to get a roasty toasty in Pixar Pier. And so they they went with Duke Kaboom. And I think it's awesome. And he made his way into the show. So uh, that's the kind of stuff we do. We've looked at weather vanes. We've looked at music. We've looked at, you know, a number of different things that I think lots of Disney fans would appreciate and like. Uh, and we, I think you could appreciate this too. I, we don't take ourselves very seriously. You know what I mean? Like I don't call myself a Disney historian. 
but we do dive into lots of Disney history topics. So um, there's a separation between, you know, I don't think I'm the most important podcaster on the planet. I just like the stuff as much as hopefully the listeners do. Oh, absolutely. Well, and that resonates as a, as a listener, that enthusiasm, that uh, just reverence for Disney comes through. And if you want to hear anything Disney pop culture, uh, <laughs> definitely, definitely check out both of your podcasts. Matt, such a pleasure to have you on, on the show. I think we covered a lot of great emotional Disney world music. And yeah, I definitely welcome you back to the podcast anytime. Thank you so much for having me. Anytime I get to come on and talk Disney um, is going to be absolute an absolute joy for me, as well as talking about these songs that have brought you know so many of us joy through the years. So I appreciate you, and thank you so much. Thanks, Matt. And thanks again, Matt, for joining me on the show. Such a pleasure. And we covered a lot of ground here over two episodes. So as a recap of our most emotional Walt Disney World music for Funniest, Matt selected the songs from the Country Bear Jamboree, whereas I chose the cue music and the final song from It's Tough to Be a Bug. For most haunting, I picked the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror cue music, whereas Matt chose We'll Meet Again by Vera Lynn, which is played on Sunset Boulevard in Disney's Hollywood Studios. For most triumphant, Matt picked Soarin' Around the World, I chose the score for Fantasmic. For most nostalgic, I picked Grim Grinning Ghosts from the Haunted Mansion. Matt selected There's a Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow from the Carousel of Progress. For most energizing, Matt chose the ragtime music on Main Street. And I chose the Tomorrowland area loop in the Magic Kingdom. For most calming, this was where both Matt and I were on the same page, we picked the Space Mountain cue music, such as the Star Tunnel music, as an example. For most joyful, Matt picked One Little Spark from Journey Into Your Imagination, and I chose There's a Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow from Carousel of Progress. For saddest, we had the same sentiment by picking Two Brothers from The American Adventure, for most nostalgic, Matt selected Tomorrow's Child from Spaceship Earth. I picked the Ellen's Energy Adventure theme. And finally, for most awe-inspiring, I picked Soren, Soren over California, and Matt chose Impressions de France. There you have it. Those are our selections for the most emotional Walt Disney World music. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports. And be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.